Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Henrik is the executive director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to welcome Hillary Davidson to the podcast this week. Hillary is the best-selling author of seven crime novels, including the standalones Her Last Breath and Blood Always Tells, the Lily Moore series, which included The Damage Done, The Next One to Fall, and Evil in All Its Disguises, and the Shadows of New York series, One Small Sacrifice and Don't Look Down. Her fiction has won two Anthony Awards and a Derringer Award, and her short stories have appeared in Thuglet, Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, Mystery Tribune, Beat to a Pulp, and in many anthologies. She served for four years on the National Board of the Mystery Writers of America. In her prior life as a journalist, Hillary authored 18 nonfiction books. Originally from Toronto, she's called New York City Home since October 2001. Welcome to the podcast, Hillary. Thanks so much, Julie. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted to, to talk to you. And, uh, you know, there's so many current and former journalists who I talk to about writing. So I look forward to to hearing about that move. Um, but let's start where I always start with this. When did you say to yourself, I want to write a novel? Oh, if you were to go back and talk to me when I was eight years old, that would have been my dream. I was obsessed with writing when I was a little kid. I used to write short stories all the time, um, to the point where I even entered them in some contests in Scholastic Magazine. And so I have these like little published stories from those days. Um, and it was it was not just fiction, though. I also loved journalism. And I founded a newspaper at my elementary school when I was in fourth grade. Wow. Um, I literally have always been writing. So it's, it's just, um, it's been my, my life's dream, I guess, and ambition. But the funny thing is, um, growing up, I didn't think of it as a realistic career choice. It never occurred to me in a million years that I could be writing fiction and, you know, focusing on that, making a living. I kind of assumed like, well, I'll work with words. And so in terms of like what I studied and prepared for, it was to edit. It wasn't to write. So it was actually, yeah, it was, it was kind of an interesting transition because I just sort of thought like, well, that's a practical path. I can always, you know, do some writing on the side. And I, um, I ended up, I worked in magazines for about three years. Um, and I worked in public relations actually a little bit before that to fund my career (laughs) in magazines (laughs) because magazines don't pay well. And I started off doing an internship that didn't pay anything at all for five months. And I had to work for a year and a half in a public relations job basically to fund that. Um, and then I decided like, no, no, this isn't actually what I wanted to do. And so that's how I, you know, sort of transitioned into being a journalist. And from there, it was like more than a decade before I started writing fiction again. 
And what kind of journalism did you do? So I was sort of a jack of all trades when I started. I was one of those writers. I did business writing, health writing, profiles, book reviews, you name it. But um, I always had a passion for travel. And I did this funny Mm. sort of thing. I always dreamed, you know, magazines will send me on trips. And everybody wants to go on trips. You know, nobody was sending me on trips. And so um, I did what I often do, which is I reverse engineered things. I realized that since no one was going to send me anywhere and I didn't have the money to sort of ship myself to different places and write about them, that what I would do would be to pitch stories about my hometown, Toronto, and pitch those to different magazines and pitch those to newspapers. And I ended up for a couple of years just doing this tremendous amount of writing about um, Toronto, which is one of those cities. It's it's a big city. It's fascinating. It has great food. It has, it's uh, such a diverse, like rich, you know, multicultural city. Uh, But people, you know, most of the time you hear, especially from Americans, like, oh, I've never been there. So actually got a sort of a great response to doing that. And it landed me at work with the Fromer's Travel Guides. Uh, a lot of those books that I did, my first 18 nonfiction books, uh, 17 of them were travel guides. And wow. I wrote the Fromer's City Guide every year for uh, 10 years, actually. So basically, wow. I always have this sort of thought of like, I have these far off dreams and I don't know how to reach them. And I always feel like I do this weird reverse engineering thing. Like I, you know, I can't quite get to where I want to go. And so I'm going to start in a, in a very different place. So travel writing about your hometown wasn't normal, but it it definitely worked (laughs) for me. (laughs) Well, I think it shows a lot of ingenuity. And I think a lot of um, artists, you know, need to think about how to, how to, backwards engineer into a career because we think that this is the only path and if it doesn't work out that's it and that if you really want to do something that can't be true yeah it's one of the things I find with people starting out writing is everybody is always like well you know how did you sort of write a book and how did you get an agent and how did you do these things and there's such big things that it's always it's a lot to take on to sort of sit by yourself and produce an entire book and then go through the hellish process of pitching agents and dealing with so much rejection. And it's so hard. And it, it was sort of like, I kind of reverse engineered that too, because when I started writing short stories, I was sort of dipping my toe into the water and I didn't know anyone who wrote crime. I didn't know sort of where to start in the industry. And so I got some copies of the Best American Mystery Stories and I mm-hmm. looked at where did they get their stories from? And it was, again, like this sort of reverse engineering process, like, okay, those are the places that I am going to go out and pitch. And, you know, it's these strategies only work so far because most of them said no to me. Most of them just was, you know, flat rejections. But, um, you know, an online journal called Thuglet said yes. And that became like my first three um, published fiction credits, you know, were short stories in Thuglet. And um, one of those got picked up for a best of the year anthology, which, you know, you, you can't plan on something like that happening. But, you, no. can, you know, if you get a lucky break, you can grab it. And um, an agent ended up approaching me on the strength of that. So in a way, I felt like um, I, I short circuited the process, maybe in some ways that sort of going about it in an untraditional way really mm-hmm. worked. Well, so let's, I want to keep, I want to talk about your publishing journey, but let's talk about the writing. When you, 
was it always crime fiction for you? Were you always drawn to that genre or, or was it gen, you know, talk to me about that. Yeah. So I am a lifelong crime fiction fan and I, I sort of blame my grandmother and Nancy Drew, Nancy Drew being the gateway (laughs) drug into crime fiction that, um, and my grandmother would go to these sort of auctions, like in the countryside and, she managed to get me original Nancy Drew books. So the blue covers with the pen and ink drawings where uh, Nancy was 16 years old and she was sassier and mouthier than when they rewrote yeah, her later. Yeah. And I loved those books so much. And it was kind of a progression where, you know, I was reading Nancy Drew for a while in elementary school. And then, I don't know, maybe grade or five started reading Agatha Christie and just went down the rabbit hole of Agatha Christie. Loved, loved, loved. Mm-hmm. And in in high school, I discovered Sarah Paretsky. Um, I think I read uh, the first V.I. Warshawski book. Maybe it was something like you know ninth or tenth grade or something, and just became obsessed. I'm such a fan of Sarah Paretsky. She's just amazing. But you know, read my first Walter Mosley book, and there is this progression with sort of. Um, more more like dangerous crime fiction because by the time I went to college I was reading like Jim Thompson and Patricia Highsmith and sort of more yeah. of a noir kind of thing but yeah lifelong fan of the genre um you know just I I truly do love mystery I think even when I'm reading sort of in other because I think there's a there's a lot of mystery in works that aren't um, for marketing reasons, you know, called mis- you know, it's, it's so much of this is marketing yeah. in the book industry. Yeah. And, you know, mystery is what drives story for me. I'm primarily interested in character, but I love, you know, why do characters do what they do? The sort of psychological mm-hmm. side of that. So yeah, hardcore crime fiction addict. And when you went from journalism to writing fiction, <clears throat> did you because there's some things you have to unlearn when you're a journalist and, and you're writing fiction. Did you take craft classes or how did you how did you get yourself trained to write in fiction? How did you build up the craft? Because you're right. It's a totally different skill set. And I used to pride myself on before I sat down to write an article, I kind of had a draft of it in my head and I could usually write very quickly. And I discovered when I started writing fiction that it would take me like all morning to do, you know, 200 words or 250 words. It was like, what, you know, what happened to my brain? What's wrong? But it is really, it's like a a different muscle group. It's as if, you know, you're really great at swimming and you want to take up running. Like you might be a great athlete in this one area, but you actually need to develop new muscles. So um, some of it was, you know, learning by doing. I, I decided I needed to like, focus on doing some writing every day, even if I only got those 200 words. But I did do um, courses. Back when I started writing fiction, uh, there was Media Bistro was still around. And I did, um, I think I did a series of workshops. They weren't crime fiction focused. So the only thing was I tended to be the only person in the group writing crime fiction, which... um, sometimes wasn't the most helpful thing yeah. because I would, you know, right. read my pages and people would say, that's so dark, <laughs> you know, that's too dark. Like, no, you know, that's, that's upsetting. And it's like, you know, this is what I do, but it <laughs> was absolutely encouraging. Um, it was, uh, I, I think honestly, 
you know, finding Sisters in Crime and joining that group and starting to go to the meetings really helped because I didn't feel like this fish out of water anymore. I found like, oh, you know, there is a community and I can actually, you know, not play down this sort of dark side, this criminal side. Um, So, yeah, so there was definitely like a process, I would say, of just sort of, you know, learning by trial and error, lots of reading. Like, I think it made me an even more avid reader before I would Mm -hmm. read um, writers that I love. If I love a writer's books, I want to read everything that they've written. But it made me look a little bit sort of more widely and sort of, well, here are new voices that are being published. What are they doing? So there were like, you know. There was like reading, writing, taking some courses, meeting people, all of it helped. Yeah. Um, and do you define yourself by a particular genre? I just, I usually say crime writer. You know, when, when people ask um, if I'm pressed, I, I'll say, you know, psychological suspense. But I've written really different books and I've written them in different mm-hmm. ways. I've done sort of everything from first person narrator um, you know, close third person, multiple narrators, multiple viewpoints in a story. Um, and some of it is veered into like police procedural, investigation, mm-hmm. amateur sleuth. Um, and I, I think the thing that links them is always that the psychological aspect, the sort of the character aspect, why do people do the things they do? You know, I'm, I'm interested in what would motivate a person to commit a crime because, not really interested in someone who's decided to go into crime as a career. I want to know what pushes somebody over the edge, somebody who, you know, has lived a good life and thinks of themselves as a good person and what could push that person over. So the psychological, you know, side of it would be the link, but I just say crime fiction because I feel like it encompasses, you know, amateur sleuth and police procedural and all those different things. Yeah. And you've written short, you've written series, you've written standalone. So you really are, um, you maneuver a lot through the the field, which is great. And I think that's building a career. I I love Um, it. I know it's not the advice people, you know, people will say, well, focus on one thing. But I feel like I'm very lucky because I've been able to work with different groups of different people and sort of, um, I, I have a lot of ideas. I feel like I'm always getting different ideas and writing the short stories, for instance, lets me explore subjects that I'm interested in that I might not be able to shape into a novel, but like, there's definitely something that's caught my mind, um, mm-hmm. snagged my interest. So it's, it's like a playground for me. So what's your process like, Hillard? Oh, very messy. <laughs> It is. I'm a seat of the pants writer. I have, uh, and I would say I'm a failed outliner. I have tried to outline so many times and I've even um, re-outlined while I've been writing a book thinking, well, I've got the first third of the book down now. Now I can outline the rest of it. And I have yet to stick to an outline. Um, You know, Thomas and Mercer, which has published my last three books, they wanted an outline of the standalone that I did. And so I wrote this outline of the book, kind of what I envisioned at the time. And the book that I gave to them (laughs) that they ended up publishing was (laughs) nothing like that outline at all. Um, I I think sometimes there might be a fun sideline and, you know, putting online, like, here's my outline for the book. And (laughs) See all the places where I veered away. You know, look, the two characters' names stayed the same. And yeah, it's, uh, I I think what tends to happen for me is that if 
I can plot something out, I think, oh my goodness, other people are going to be able to guess at that because my mind followed this linear sort of path. And I'm always playing this kind of game of what if as I write. And so I think I was encouraged a little bit in this by, uh, I don't know if you've read, um, there are two books called the Agatha Christie Notebooks that I think a writer named John Curran published. And you see where sort of she changed her mind about different things and she changed Mm -hmm. her mind about who could be, you know, the perpetrator. And so I'll do that. I'll I'll say like, well, you know, I thought this would be a really good idea if it were, you know, character X, but you know, what if it's character Y instead? And how would that work? How would it, you know, how would it change the story? How would it change the sort of the emotional, you know, the tenor, the relationships? So, yeah. So that's why I say like, process is um, very messy. It's definitely cleaner with short stories because usually I'm holding the whole story in my mind. I I know what the sort of um, focus is, but somehow with books, it's like, oh, it, it, it runs away from me and I'm always trailing after it saying, you know, what, what are you doing now? <laughs> So this is mechanics. And and again, I am such a writing geek that I love learning about this. Uh, But do you use, do you write in Word? Do you write in Scrivener? Because people, I am amazed by pantsers because to keep all of that in your head is such an amazing feat. I mean, I... I can barely remember a grocery list, right? So, um, so do you use Scrivener or do you do, you know, how do you write? I love Scrivener. I, I am obsessed with Scrivener and I feel like it has made my writing so much easier. It's not that I don't use Word for um, anything. I actually did a novella uh, that'll be coming out this summer and the editor worked in Word and I ended up working in Word because that was what he was working in. And what I realized was that when I talk about changing my mind, I often change the order that things happen Mm -hmm. in a book. And, you know, software like Scrivener just lets me do that, you know, like a dream kind of thing. It's so easy. Whereas doing it with Word, I think I accidentally deleted chapters a couple of times. And I was like going back into my computer backups to see if I could get them back. I was just, you know, it it was not a good process. Um, Word is fine. Like, you know, a short story or something. I have to convert things to to Word anyway to send it in. But for novels, I I can't imagine um, anything but Scrivener. I tend to... um, I'll have sort of notes on all kinds of random things that go into the book. And sometimes it's even like architecture or there'll be some visual component that I'll Mm -hmm. end up putting in the research section. Um, And I feel like, you know, Scrivener is kind of big enough to sort of encompass all of those things and to let me play with the flow and to, you know, to do things that way. So it absolutely helps keep me organized. And it's probably a big part of the reason, you know, why I'm able to, you know, hold so much in my head. A lot of it's really in Scrivener, not my head. (laughs) (laughs) And do you write chronologically or do you get a scene in your head and you say, I'm, this is going to be somewhere. So I'm going to put it in and then we're going to figure it out. I describe it as, you know, sort of chronological, like a linear progression. But the truth is something that made my process a bit easier. I only started doing maybe three or four books in Um, I will skip over stuff when I don't know it. I used to spend a lot of time hitting my head against the wall saying, you know, well, I I know the next scene, but 
I, I can't get the connective tissue between the scene I just wrote and the scene that I know has to happen. And I would struggle with that and just sort of spin my wheels a lot, writing words that I would end up throwing out, trying to make up that connective tissue until I started giving myself permission to skip ahead. And you know, I've referred to it as cheating. I'm not sure if that's really a good way to you know, think of it. Um, but it, it's absolutely like a cheat or a trick that makes my life easier because um, I feel like I know the characters. And so I know these key things about them and I know these key moments of conflict. And so sometimes I can't connect one scene with another, but I'm now shameless about sort of rushing ahead and doing that scene that I know and focusing on the pieces that I know. And then after I've written that, I'm often able to go back and say, oh, here's the thing that links those two scenes. Like, here's actually what I need to do. Mm -hmm. But it, it just, you know, will not come to me while I'm sort of struggling and scratching away. It, it's sort of like, it's become, I guess, maybe a, a more organic or intuitive process. And I think along the way, I've had to unlearn some things because, mm-hmm. you know, I would never have written a nonfiction story that way. You're always, you know, if I'm doing profile or whatever, it's always like building on things and you don't just skip ahead except that I would do things like, well, I don't have a fact that I need. So I'm going to put in TK, you know, which is like the journalist's way of, you know, I've heard people say it means to come or this or that. I think it's just two letters that don't occur together in the English language. So it makes it very easy to find later. Um, But I would put things like that in and come back. And, you know, it's different doing it like with a fact that I don't have versus an entire, you know, chapter or two. But I've gotten comfortable, I think, with doing things like that because I realize, like, I can spend a lot of time digging myself into a hole and, you know, throwing words out. Right. Or I can, you know, go where my brain is and, you know, write that and just kind of try to keep moving forward, making progress. Do you tell yourself every day I need to write X number of words or a scene or or do you even do that? do. Um, so this question of like, do you write every day is something everybody always asks about. And I used to be really committed. Like I've got to write every day. Um, and I used to, I think I used to say something like 1500 words. And the truth was I wasn't writing every day, 1500 words. I would just sort of be like, Oh, I can't get to that today. You know, other things. And I cut it down to 500 words. And with 500 words, I do write every day. And it's usually like, a lot more than 500 words. But it's funny because what I tell myself, if I tell myself this big thing that I don't know, you know, oh, I, I don't have ideas, I don't know what I'm doing, it feels so hard. And I, I will tell people, like, if your goal is 100 words a day, that's a good goal. If it's going to keep your head in the story, because I think that's the key thing. I don't think it's so much that you actually have to actively write every day. Sometimes you might go and read what you've written and tear words out of that and have a negative word count because of that. But you need to sort of have your head in this, you know, fictional world that you're creating to make those characters breathe, to make them live. And so you you just need to kind of stay in that world. And whether that's writing, you know, that world every day, whether that's going back in and reading, um, you know, what you've been doing and sort of ideas spiraling from there. It's all good. 
But um, yeah, I, I made my goal a small goal, and now it's like, oh, that's that's a totally achievable goal. I can I can do five hundred words. That's fine. That's such great advice. That's because you're right. I mean, if it's too big a goal, and you're just like, well, I don't have time to write fifteen hundred words, you can skip the whole thing. But five hundred words. Yeah. page it feels doable and it's yeah. like, oh I can do this it, it, yeah. it was it's silly because I think I had the higher goal because the idea was well if you want to write your first draft in three months this is what you need to write every day or something and so that was how I came up to the number it wasn't like oh that's a good number for me it was just like well mathematically this is what I need to get that first draft and it's like yeah humans don't really work that way <laughs> you know Especially writers. <laughs> um, you know, you you mentioned psychological suspense. So just talking about that, uh, you know, and how you put together that story. Are you when you start, especially a standalone? Are you thinking about a character, a situation? What what comes together that makes you think, I this is this is the book. This is what I can write a whole book about. It's really hearing the character's voice more than anything. Like I will, there will be a scenario and, you know, um, my, my most recent book, Her Last Breath, I had this scenario in mind of um, a woman who's grieving for her dead sister. She's going to her funeral. And on the day of her sister's funeral, she gets a message that her sister had set up to go out um, if she died, saying that if anything happened to me, um, you know, it's my husband. He had a wife that he killed before I married him. And so it's like, oh, like there's this, this scenario, but it wouldn't work if I didn't have this really strong idea of the character that I was going to be writing about and her point of view. And I often, you know, I, I'll, I'll have these ideas and I don't know how they'll come together or how they'll gel. In that case, um, you know, the main character of Deirdre She's someone who has trouble dealing with her emotions. She comes from a family that's very emotionally closeted. People don't talk about their feelings. People hide a lot. And um, she reacts physically much more than, you know, verbally. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the story sort of forces her to dig deep. And I, I honestly didn't know, like, how am I going to push this character to do those things? It, it's not like I know that, but I know where she's coming from. I know the background that she has. Like, you know, she she is just so real in my mind. And that, for me, is where the book comes from. It, you know, it, it really, first and foremost, um, is all about character. And is that something that you... Noodle, like noodle on for a while or you know if uh, do I know deadlines often help <laughs> um, but you know it's I find I find how people come up with ideas and and process them and we could you're what you wrote about 10 writers could write this write their own books about it, it would be 10 different books I mean I think that's sort of the beauty of ideas is how it works with you is a different chemical reaction to anybody else exactly. um right but but you know is there did this I love the premise of this was it just something that you woke up one day and went wouldn't that be kind of a cool way to <laughs> to to do this mm -hmm. or you know? It came about because I actually read about um, a service where people could leave messages. I mean, it, it wasn't put out there as anything sinister, but the idea was, you know, let's say uh, you're an 
you know, older person who knows your life is coming to an end or you have an illness and you want to leave messages for your loved ones, you know, here's a service that would let you do it. And I remember going away from that thinking, well, what if a person were to, and it started out with, what if a person were to admit to a crime that way? And then it morphed into, well, what if a person admitted that they knew a crime had happened and they've maybe been worrying all this time that the same thing could happen to them. And that just sort of struck an emotional chord. And I think too, like sometimes it's, um, you know, it's, it's what you've experienced as a writer, but it's also what your friends have experienced, what your family's experienced. Um, And I think when all of this was noodling around in my mind, uh, there were a couple of different friends who, we're going through uh, really tough times in their relationships where there was sort of varying levels of abuse that they were experiencing in trying to get out of these relationships. And it made me really sort of start to go in that direction and start to think about partner violence and, um, you know, the secrets that people keep that, you know, you, you think you're so close to someone, you think that you know so much about them. And there are these things that people hide often because they're so ashamed. They can't Mm -hmm. believe they're in that situation. So the idea was to have this, you know, beautiful, glamorous, you know, older sister who married into a wealthy family and looked like she had everything. Her life was this great success. And to be having this you know, secret, you know, behind the scenes of what was going on. And the idea absolutely kept morphing after that. I, you know, it's the, the book is actually a very um, uh, wild experimental book in some ways, but it absolutely deals with ideas of generational abuse and um, mm-hmm. the secrets that people keep. Mm. I, um, I love hearing and you pay about people's process it's always so interesting and, and inspiring and I you know one of the takeaways that I've gotten from talking to so many writers on this podcast is that everyone has a different way of doing it and there's no one way or right way um, and I hope that's what listeners are hearing too it's like your your way is the right way just keep Absolutely. figuring it out yeah and yeah. that's you know it, literally I I cannot um, emphasize enough. There's there's so much advice that's out there and it's valuable. But the main thing is that writers give advice about what works for them and everyone's Mm -hmm. process is different. Everyone's different. So, you know, what works great for someone, we'll give it a try, but don't feel bad if it doesn't work for you. It, It has no comment on how good a writer you are, you know, oh, legitimate writers do this. Everyone does. No, there's nothing that everyone does. Like, take that pressure off, embrace it as these are things to try, you know, this might help me, but if it doesn't let it go. I think that's fabulous advice. What, so talking about advice, what is the worst piece of writing advice you've gotten? The best piece. And what's your favorite piece? I think you just gave it, but uh, what's your favorite piece of writing advice to give to folks, especially people who are just, figuring out how to be on this path and how to learning how to write a book is you've got to write a book to learn how to write a book. And it's not 
simple. Right. <laughs> so right. you have to do it to figure it out. Um, but you know, what? Talk to me about some writing advice that's worked for you or that hasn't worked for you. Yeah. So, so just in addition to sort of having a very open mind about advice that you hear and giving it a try, but being willing to let it go, because I, I stand by that. I think everybody has to find their own process. But one thing that I think might be just generally helpful to people is write about your obsessions. Write about the things that resonate with you, that you have a passion for. And it doesn't matter if they sound a bit crazy. One of the things, like I always go back to as a journalist and then as, you know, fiction writer, I love cemeteries. And there's almost always a cemetery in my books, um, sometimes more than one. Um, I, I love them. I wrote nonfiction pieces for like places like CNN about cemetery tourism. And, you know, I, it's, I'll put it down to, I grew up in a city where um, cemeteries are treated like public parks. One of our most beautiful public mm-hmm. parks is called Mount Pleasant in Toronto. And you will see people with baby strollers there and jogging. And it's just, it's a beautiful park that you happen to share with dead people. That's great. But no matter what it is, there are other people that this will resonate with too. You might think you're the only person in the world who, you know, who's interested in this or obsessed by this. No. And when you write about it, your passion will come through on the page. And it will also hook people who maybe weren't interested in this before. So, you know, I think sometimes people cast around for, you know, well, well, here's a trend that's happening, or if I want to get published, you know, people look at it in practical ways. And this is not a practical field. This is not a sort of um, a practice. If you want to do something practical, this ain't it, (laughs) you know, so you may as well proceed with passion and really sort of put out there what inspires you, what obsesses you, you know, what's in your mind, because I think that that's part of what makes fiction dynamic. So that's my my one piece of advice that I'll say that I think maybe could apply whatever anyone is doing is, is to do that with that personal passion. Yeah, passion matters so much, uh, you know, and, and shows through. When you're reading something and people are passionate about it, could be something I have no interest in, but but the passion is contagious. It's like, oh, that's interesting, or, you know, I'll go with it. So that's a great piece of advice. You said that you wrote a novella that's coming out this summer. So short stories, standalone series, novellas, <laughs> nonfiction, um, travel <laughs> um, articles. I mean, you, you've really written a, a bunch of different forms. <clears throat> the novella, just for folks who, who might not understand, it's 30,000? Yeah, I've been describing to people, it's just a very long short story. You know, think of it as a very short novel or a very long short story. It has chapters just like a regular novel does. But I think this is, uh, I wouldn't say like 25,000 words, maybe all told or something like that. You know, it's um, different than reading short story you have sort of the emotional beats of a novel but mm-hmm. you know it things happen a lot faster um i had never written one before i love novellas but i i know that's sort of a tough thing to sort of you know oh to find a market for 
And so in this case, it was actually like, oh, it found me. There's this ongoing series called Grifter's Song by uh, the, and the editor is Frank Zafiro. And he's had so many terrific writers contribute to it. Um, Sean Cosby um, is one of them. Gary Phillips, um, Holly West. Uh, Eric Beatner, like just a sort of like fantastic crew. I did episode number 28. This has been going on for years now. It's it's just sort of a great series. And uh, you're basically writing a standalone story about the two main characters, these this pair of grifters who are always sort of trying a different angle. And I loved it because it was sort of like a, a noirish kind of vibe. Um yeah, I, I love the book, The Grifters, and I've never written about people who are career criminals. And, you know, this was this was actually a sort of fun way to delve into that world. Um, but, yeah, it was one of those things like when Frank asked me to do this, I was really like busy with a lot of different things. And I sort of thought, oh, you know, on a practical level, I don't know how I take this on. And then I thought, well, when else am I going to write a novella? And I love the series. So. You know, there was a book I read a few years ago, which was Shonda Rhimes' um, book, um, like A Year of Yes, I think she called it. And it really changed my perspective because I'm not advocating that people take on more than they think they can do. But I think I reflexively used to say no to a lot of things because I didn't know how I would do them. And it was a lack of confidence instead of just saying like, well, does my gut say that I would actually be interested in this? then maybe yeah. I should embrace it. So I feel like that actually is, you know, I said yes to the novella basically because I still have that book in my head pushing me along to do some things like different things. Well, that's great. And what an interesting series. I mean, I, I yeah. Repeat the name of it. Yeah. So my, the, my installment is episode number 28. It's called Dangerous to Know. And the overall um, part, series is called A Grifter's Song. And, um, yeah, they, uh, it's been going on now for, I think about five years or so The books That's have been published great. by down and out books. That's so great. That's so we talked a lot about writing and you're so generous with your, your, your thoughts and, and sharing, uh, inspiration, but publishing is a different journey, <laughs> um, as it is with nonfiction journalism and everything else, but especially in fiction, um, you know, I always think that you can you can control your fate as a writer, but you can't depend on your publishing journey to make you feel good about it or to define success because so much of the publishing journey is out of your control. What is your what is what surprised you most about your publishing journey? Oh wow. I think um, you know, when I started, I never imagined how many Uh, changes would come down the road. So my first four books were published by Tor Forge, which is part of Macmillan. And I loved working with my editor there. Um, And he ended up leaving the company. Um, And I, you know, sort of passed on to another editor there who's a terrific person. I didn't leave because of her or anything like that. Um, But I, at the same time, went through change with my agent, where um, I think I sort of assumed like, oh, you get an agent and you just sort of keep working with them. Well, my agent had loved my first three books, which were the books of the Lily Moore series, and hadn't loved my first standalone book, Blood Always Tells. And I remember we were talking about it and, um, 
you know, my agent was saying, well, this book begins with a woman who's having an extramarital affair. No one is going to want to read about that. And I was sort of like, oh, I think maybe a lot of people might want to read about that. But um, we just, we had such different feelings um, about it. And I realized like, I want to do um, different projects. I don't just want to keep on writing the Lily Moore series. I want to do these other things. And that was really when I realized I'm going to have to change agents. And so I don't think anyone really ever sits you down and explains the sort of the birds and the bees about the publishing business where, you know, it's like relationships that work for a while. You'll have some relationships, maybe a relationship with a publishing house with an agent that's a really good fit. And maybe it will be for years, but then you will both change and it might not be such a good fit anymore. And no one is the villain in that story. I mean, this is not some kind of bad, unhealthy dynamic, but you actually need to be honest with yourself and look at the relationship and look at what you want to do and be able to, you know, to move on. So I know I certainly wrestled um, with that. Um, you know, I, I, I found that so hard because I thought, oh, my goodness, if I leave my agent, who I like in so many ways, but how am I going to find another agent? And so always like a lot of anxiety in the process. But then if you talk to other writers behind the scenes, Everyone's gone through this. You know, there's a handful of writers out there who haven't. People just don't talk about it. Um, And understandably, you know, social media is so fraught. I think people don't want to be seen. You know, you're not complaining necessarily. You know, you you just don't want to air all of your dirty laundry in public. But if you approach people behind the scenes, I found them to be really Mm -hmm. generous. And I always try to be very honest when people, you know, approach me and ask, but you're not going to find this information out there. It's like you, you basically stumble into a situation. And, you know, for me, I've been left thinking, well, what do I do next? How am I supposed to handle this? Because there's no roadmap. So in, in the back of my mind, I think sometimes like maybe I need to be the one then to write this, to give people an idea that it's not all smooth sailing. You probably will change publishers. Maybe you'll do some self-publishing you know, maybe you'll change agents. Like there will be sort of an ebb and flow to these relationships and movement in the relationships. And that's all normal. Like I look at my friends who aren't writers and well, they've left companies and gone to work for other companies and sometimes started their own venture. And that's normal, but there's more of a roadmap for that in other industries. I, I, what you're saying is so important. Um, and it is, you're right, exactly right. It's not a conversation people have. Um, and we, would you, or unless you go to a conference, you like that, right. you know, you, unless yeah. you see people or go to a sisters in crime meeting or an MWA meeting and you could talk to people in person, but even then not everyone's honest about it. Exactly. You know? <clears throat> so much, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because there's always this kind of personal component where I think sometimes people feel ashamed that if something didn't work out, because honestly, a lot of responsibility is downloaded to the writer, you know, these days, yep. like, you know, it's sort of like, well, you need a a public platform and a lot of writers are now having to do their own publicity. And there's sort of like, if the book fails, well, that must be because you, the writer didn't do enough. And it's like, no, even now publishers can't tell you what makes a book succeed or fail. I mean, the biggest names in the business don't know. So, you know, but there, there is that sense of, I think people being ashamed if something didn't work out and not wanting to talk about that. And I would 
love it if we could sort of get away from from shame. It, it's so useless. It's it's not helping so anyone. Nice. And like I say, I certainly understand not wanting to put things out on social media because that can be misread, yeah. you know, there are all yeah. sorts of things like that. But certainly like when you're meeting up with people, it's just good for everybody to, you know, try to be honest. There was a, there was one great discussion a while back on social media about what people were paid for their novels. And it really helps people get a kind of benchmark. You mm-hmm. know what's normal when you've never had a book deal before and you don't know anyone right. else who's had a book deal. So it, we we could really benefit with, you know, some way of, of sharing that information. Actually giving me an idea I, that I'm thinking now, well, I, I actually have something to talk to you about <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> no, I, I was actually thinking we should probably talk about this. <laughs> I do, I do yeah. think that... <laughs> It shouldn't, it shouldn't discourage people. It can be discouraging, but I, I, I spent many years working in the, in theater. And so, you know, it's the same conversation there. It's like, let's have an honest conversation about how few actors can support themselves acting. Right. You know, people who you see everywhere have another job. So (laughs) that's okay. It's like, this isn't, artists should be paid more. Absolutely. But, but the business side is a mess and is difficult and is challenging and is also wonderful, but you can't, you know, it's not, it's not like being an insurance salesman. It's not the same metric. Exactly. That was why I guess like last year there was like that webinar that I did uh, for Sisters in Crime about bringing your own books back into print yourself. And I remember it took me a long time to do that. And part of it was, I felt a bit embarrassed, like, oh, wow, this, if I do this myself, people are going to think no one wanted to buy my books. And the truth was right. like, well, people would have, you know, publishers would have bought the books, but they wanted to buy them for very little money. And then I would have been signing the rights over and control of the book again. So even though I didn't really know what I was doing, I, I realized like a better path forward is actually me hiring cover designers and doing this myself. And I wanted to share that with people because it took me from when I got the rights to deciding to do that, it took me a couple of years to get there. You know, mm-hmm. where I, I was just like, well, you know, the, a, a professional writer would bring these out with another publisher. And it's like, no, like, thankfully, we can actually, you know, control yeah. a lot ourselves. And, you know, you don't need um, you don't need a corporation behind you. You can do this. You know, here are the tools. And, you know, it's helpful if you hear what some other people's experiences are doing it. But, um, yeah, I think writers sort of, there's a tendency to see what a publisher will do. I know I've had that tendency over and over. And just in the last couple of years, I would say I've really taken a lot more initiative and just thought, like, what do I want to do? What do I want to see? And, and you know, certainly with bringing those four books back into print, that has really worked out. Yeah. So for Sisters in Crime members, um, Hillary's webinar is in the archives um, so that you can find that and and it's it's a wonderful one and incredibly helpful when you're thinking about this because um, you're exactly right how lucky are we that we live in a time where there's so many different ways of, of getting stuff done and so and gatekeepers are still there but you can also bypass them or or completely jump over them if you exactly. want to exactly I mean the, I think yeah. the definition of success has changed because it used to be um, Oh, well, traditionally published and, you know, this sort of 
uh, like level of success where you're getting you know reviews in newspapers and magazines and that sort of thing. And we see now there are independently published writers who have huge followings who, you know, you might not encounter mm-hmm. them in, you know, ever in a newspaper, the name in a newspaper, but um, their books sell, you know, tremendously well and they're making that happen for themselves. And, you know, I was on the board of MWA when we opened it up to people who were self-publishing. It was so contentious at the time. Uh, the idea, like, I mean, there, there was honestly this sort of um, attitude that some people had about what a real writer was and wasn't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it was so wonderful to be able to sort of, you know, make that change and, and yes, yes. because you are a real writer. If you are writing, that is literally yes. like all you have to do to be a real writer. Yes. You have to write. Yes. Yes. Being a published writer is a, a published author is a completely different thing. And there are many ways of doing it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Hillary, this has been great. Tell me what's next for you or, or, you know, where, you know, what's, what's inspiring you these days? Oh, wow. So I've got a novel that is another standalone that I've been working on. I, I joke about it breaking my brain because I think I've started telling it from <laughs> the point of view of three different characters. And <laughs> I would love to sort of mash it together and say, I've got enough now for a book. But I, I think the, uh, <laughs> the current character may just be the one viewpoint that, that carries through. But it's funny because I, I guess... Um, I, I, when I write stories, I often put them out of my head sometimes, like when I'm done and I'll kind of forget like, oh yeah, you know, that's coming out now. So the last few months have been a flurry of short stories. Um, there was one in the Under the Thumb anthology, um, called Another Hooker, which, uh, I know is kind of a terrible name, but it's about police on dismissive attitudes towards sex workers, um, and the death of a sex worker. So there was that story, uh, one anthology called Death of a Bad Neighbor um, that I was in with a story called King of the Castle. The Warren Zevon anthology just came out this week, uh, which I was so mm-hmm. excited about, crime fiction inspired by that. And my novella, Dangerous to Know, will be out in July. So basically, you know, my, my agent is sort of checking in all the time now saying, so you've got all this other stuff coming out. Where's that book? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm now a little bit in crunch mode where I am. I am yeah. desperately trying to get this done. But it's funny. It's, it's been a process. Um, you know, really, I said it earlier on, like getting to know the character is first and foremost. And I sort of, I have a strong sense of three of the characters in the book. And it's been sort of, how do I weave this into a story? And it, it's mm-hmm. been challenging. Every, one thing I guess I'd say before we go is just um, don't ever think that this gets easier because someone has published books. Every book is its own crazy challenge. And you just have yeah. to sort of step up to that each time you write a book. Yeah. Well, that's a great place to end it. And you you certainly do step up to it. So thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Julie. This was such a joy. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. 
We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast. <laughs>